from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they display their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on John Wayne Gacy. But before I get into it, I want to thank my anchor supporter, Lori Nichols, for supporting the podcast. Thank you. John Wayne Gacy was born on March 17, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. And as always, let's get into some history of that time, though for this podcast it will be brief because this one is a long one. Okay, here we go. In 1942, we see the beginning of World War II. The minimum age for men to be drafted into the military went from 21 to 18. The United States began air raid attacks on Japan. Car manufacturers switched to making war materials. The Canine Corps began training dogs for use in war. The citizens in allied countries were asked to donate any scrap metals as they were desperately needed for the war effort. The Declaration of the United Nations was signed by 26 nations in January. It was the foundation for the later United Nations organization after the war ended. General MacArthur, the General MacArthur, had to make a dramatic escape from the Philippines as Japanese forces were closing in. And the first nuclear chain reaction happened in Enrico Fermi's lab at the University of Chicago. So this was the atmosphere that John was born into. His parents were John and Marion Gacy. His father, John Stanley Gacy, was born in June of 1900 in Chicago. He was of German descent and his paternal grandmother was born in 1872 in Germany. He worked as an auto repair machinist in a Chicago factory after he served and was a veteran of World War I. His mother, Marion, was born in May 1908 in Racine, Wisconsin. After her marriage, she remained a housewife. The couple got married in January 1939 in Chicago. They then went on to have three children. John Wayne Gacy was the middle and their only son. He was reportedly born with a congenital heart defect. 
His mother also stated that he had released his first bowel movement while still in the womb, which caused him to be ill at birth. He did have two sisters. Joanne was his older sister and Karen his younger. Now, John Sr. was a severe alcoholic, which is believed to be stemmed from his time serving in World War I. His father would go down into the basement after work and drink brandy. His wife and children would listen to him begin to talk to himself. Then it would escalate to him shouting in anger. But once he was in a drunken stupor, he would come upstairs and act out in a rage towards his family. John would witness from as far back as he could remember his father physically abusing his mother, including knocking her teeth out. When it came to his son, his preferred weapon of choice was either a belt, a leather strap, or a razor strop, which is a very thick and tough strip of leather used to sharpen facial razors. We've seen them in the movies. John's first memory of his father abusing him was when he was, quote, playing house with an older teenage girl from the neighborhood. Now, this teenager had some mental issues, but his father beat him when he caught them. Another time, John was messing around with some car parts that his father had laid out while working on a car. His father saw that young John had gotten some of the parts moved about or out of order, and he beat him severely. And now both of these instances occurred by the age of five. The physical and emotional abuse continued throughout his entire childhood, usually with no real provocation or cause. His father beat him in the head with a broomstick, effectively knocking him unconscious. Now, even though his mother was also often the target of these attacks, she did her very best to protect John from these beatings, but was almost always unsuccessful. So at five years old, John began having seizures. He was taken to the doctor where he was prescribed strong anti-seizure medication. Once he started school, due to his heart condition, he was not allowed to do much of any level of physical activity, such as playing during recess or participating in physical education classes. Due to this, he was very notably overweight, and the other kids bullied him because of it. Of course, his father would belittle him and say that he was, quote, faking it. His teachers would go on to say that he was actually a good student who was always willing to help others, and in fact, his teachers were rather fond of him. He even assisted the school truancy officer, much to the chagrin of the other students, and he also was trusted to run errands for not only teachers, but his own neighbors as well. He would try his entire childhood to impress and win his father's favor, but nothing worked. Now, take a walk with me, okay? There is something to be said about having two sisters and being the only boy. 
Sisters love to have their brothers join them in their games, including playing with dolls or having tea parties. But if their father caught John participating in any of these activities that his sisters brought him into, he would berate him and call him a sissy. One place John would go and get some much-needed respite from his father was a play area beneath the family's porch. For whatever reason, his father tended to leave him be if he were under there. Could this be a bit foretelling? So at six years old, John wanted a toy truck from a store and he decided to steal it. And many kids give this a try at least once. But once his mother discovered what he had done, she walked him back to the store and made him admit what he had done and give the truck back and apologize to the owner. And that's perfectly fine and it should have ended there. But unfortunately, his mother told his father what happened and his father beat him severely with his belt. Starting at seven years old, John later stated that he was sexually molested by a friend of his family's. This, quote, friend was a contractor who offered to take John with him to job sites or just go for a ride. But these rides turned into John being fondled or having him perform sexual acts on the man. John didn't dare tell his father what was happening because he was afraid his father would say that it was his fault. At that same age, John Sr. found a pair of his wife's underwear in John's sandbox. Enraged, his father confronted him about it and beat him severely, saying he was a sissy and a, quote, mama's boy who would probably grow up to be queer, unquote. Family stated that John Sr. was angry because he knew his son would never be eligible to join the military as he had and felt that his son was an embarrassment and a failure. Once, John was hit in the head hard with a swing that actually caused a blood clot to form on his brain and that went undiagnosed until he was 16 years old. As the beatings continued, John would have seizures, which are now believed to be from the blunt force trauma to the head that he suffered from the hands of his father as well as that swing. But I cannot medically verify that. Unfortunately, John also wet the bed up until his later childhood years, and it also did not go unpunished. One of John's sisters would later state that they learned to toughen up during these beatings, and John conditioned himself to not cry. Now, you'd think that John would have taken his frustration and anger out on animals, as many serial killers typically do, but not John. He was an animal lover and adored the family pets, caring for them and spending a lot of time playing with them. His mother also fostered a love of gardening in him, which he continued into his adult years. At 14 years old, after he had had his tonsils removed, John began experiencing intense stomach pains, but his father stated he was just making it up. John's appendix ruptured and he had to be hospitalized. He nearly lost his life. 
For the next four years, John would be in and out of the hospital due to his blackouts, seizures, injuries, which affected his grades greatly and he began failing school, though his IQ was actually quite high. At some point, John began to realize that he was homosexual, but he did not dare to even insinuate that that was the case because he knew his father would beat him within an inch of his life or worse. So he kept it to himself. He did his best to stuff it down and live as if that were the last thing he would ever consider. So he would go out on dates with girls. On one particular date where he was going to attempt to be intimate with a girl, he actually blacked out for over 10 minutes and the doctors believed that this happened due to anxiety. So John had just missed too much school due to his stents in the hospital, along with trying to cope with his own issues, so he dropped out. His father just used this as further ammunition to tell John that he was never going to amount to anything. And despite all of this, John still desperately tried to please his father, though his father said he was, quote, stupid and not good enough, unquote. So, that was John's childhood. There's just so much here, we need to jump right into the very beginning. Though rare, fetuses can release their first bowel movement called meconium. If the fetus happens to, you know, inhale the meconium in along with amniotic fluid, that is called meconium aspiration, and this can create complications. First of all, the baby's airway can become blocked by the substance, and they are unable to absorb oxygen into their lungs from the amniotic fluid. Or the substance can, at the very least, irritate the baby's airways and make it hard to breathe. It can also obviously cause infection. So what causes the baby to release this? It is most often due to fetal stress. Sometimes maternal smoking can cause it or the mother having high blood pressure. What do you think the chances are of his mother being very stressed and having high blood pressure issues? due to his father. And of course, the glaringly obvious issue is the physical and mental abuse John, as well as his sisters and mother, endured from his father. We all know that abuse of any kind leads to all manner of issues, both in the immediate and long term. The physical effects of abuse are, of course, immediate injury, such as the head trauma that John endured. It can also lead to things like high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, functional limitations, brain damage, chronic illness, chronic fatigue syndrome, withdrawal from friends and society. I mean, the list is nearly endless. It is interesting to note that With the brain, according to childwelfare.gov, child abuse can also affect certain regions of the brain and thus failing to form as they normally would. You see, abuse has a direct correlation.
correlation with a reduced volume in the size of the brain overall or specific regions. These regions include the amygdala, which processes emotions, and that is scary. Many serial killers show some damage or underdevelopment of the amygdala. The hippocampus could also be affected, which is pivotal in learning and absorbing information for recall later. The orbitofrontal cortex, which is responsible for reinforcement-based decision-making and emotion regulation, this area is another region that a lot of serial killers have some form of deficiency. And finally, the corpus callosum, which is what helps the left and right side of the brain communicate with each other and processes things like arousal, emotion, and higher cognitive abilities. John's brain was actually preserved after his execution and was studied, but visually, as in standing there looking at the various areas, there were no obvious signs of malformation. This was just a general observation. But you can see how child abuse affects the developing brain as well as the person's physical well-being in the long run, and they can go on to perpetuate the cycle of abuse in their adulthood. There's so much more with child abuse, but let's move on to his seizures. So, seizures are caused by a sudden surge of electrical activity in the brain and affects how a person behaves or acts for a short period of time. Some shake uncontrollably. This is what we see on TV and in the movies. Some completely collapse and others just stare off into space. The person experiencing the seizure often either have a loss of consciousness or at least some change. Most only last a few minutes and don't pose any threat to the person experiencing them. Seizures are usually due to other medical issues like a really high fever or a serious infection, head trauma such as John, accidental poisoning or drug overdose, even a brain tumor, and sometimes they can't be explained. There are medications that can help people who have seizures, but they are not a cure. They just help control. And what medication is prescribed is based on factors like what type of seizures they're having, how old the person is, if they have other medical problems, and so on. Side effects of these medications are feeling sleepy, developing a rash, mood changes, irritability, stomach problems, but they also can affect the liver, the kidneys, blood cells, bone growth, and cause dizziness, nausea, headache, vomiting, fatigue, blurred vision. I mean, these meds are not a joke. We also know that John was bullied by his peers. Children who are bullied might display differing behaviors, but in the short term, their grades will suffer, as John's did. Um, they have social isolation, sleep disturbances, changes in eating habits, low self-esteem, school avoidance, 
anxiety, which John had, bedwetting later than normal, which John did, higher risk of illness, stomach aches, headaches, symptoms of depression, and on and on, starting to sound like a pharmaceutical commercial. So let's not forget, John wasn't just bullied by kids at school. His father was the ultimate bully. John also experienced head trauma that resulted in a blood clot. There are a few symptoms that are associated with this, but an important one is that it can cause seizures and overall weakness. And let's not forget that John was sexually abused and molested by one of his father's friends at a young age. Children, depending on the age, but generally overall, who experience sexual abuse are too young to know how to express or think about what happened to them and seek out help. If it isn't addressed, it can lead to legit PTSD, depression and anxiety, and in some cases, the child grows up to then reenact the traumatic event, as in, John went on to become a contractor and he lured boys with him. Do you see what I'm saying? Children who are sexually abused can also become secretive or show unusual aggressiveness, avoidance in anything to do with sex-related topics, withdrawal, distrust, forcing sexual acts on other children, and so on. And then finally, he knew that he was gay. So back in the 60s, health professionals and the public at large thought it was a mental illness. Think American Horror Story Asylum. It was actually listed as a mental illness by the American Psychiatric Association in the DSM until 1974. People back then either went to counseling or were sent to a behavior modification facility for, quote, conversion therapy, or simply hid it, forced into living a lie out of fear of the social stigma and, quite frankly, fear for their lives, depending on where they lived. So, with the severe physical abuse, the emotional abuse, the head trauma, um, the blood clot on his brain, the seizures, the illnesses, being bullied, and being forced to hide the fact that he was gay. I mean, how was John going to grow up to be what most call normal? So let's get back into it. When John Wayne Gacy was 18 years old, he decided he wanted to get involved in politics with the Democratic Party, much to the disappointment of his father. But in a surprising twist, his father bought him a car to which he had to make monthly payments for. John was excited, but it was a double-edged sword. This enabled John Sr. to take his keys from his son whenever he felt like it, not allowing John to drive that car. This, of course, was just another tactic to control and belittle John, and now that he was grown, he decided it was time to leave. He packed what he could, and he moved from Illinois down to Las Vegas, Nevada. 
He got a job at a mortuary as a mortuary assistant and slept on a cot in the facility behind the embalming room. John later stated that he saw a teenage boy in a coffin and decided to climb in, where he caressed and lovingly held the corpse, but then he, quote, snapped out of it, began to feel very anxious and disgusted and jumped out of the coffin. And it wasn't long after that he called his mother and asked if he could move back home, to which, surprisingly, his father agreed. So after returning to Chicago, he entered a business school and graduated in 1963 when he was 21 years old. He then took a manager trainee position for a shoe company, and he did so well in this role that he was transferred to Springfield, Illinois to work as a salesman, then quickly worked his way up to manager. He also began seeing a young woman named Marilyn Myers, who was a co-worker. In March of the next year, they became engaged and they married in September. Soon after, Marilyn's father bought some Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa, and the newlyweds moved up there to manage the stores. During this time, John also became a local civic leader of the J.C.'s and devoted much of his free time with this endeavor. The JCs are really the United States Junior Chamber of Commerce, and it provides opportunities for young men to develop personal and leadership skills through service to others. So this makes sense, right? If he felt he could never please his father or make him proud, then he would do so for his community. This is also when John would have his first real homosexual experience. He said that another man in the JCs got him drunk, got him to his house where he was nearing passing out on the man's couch and the man performed oral sex on him. By 1965, John had risen through the ranks of the JCs to become the vice president of the area and was named the third most outstanding JC in the state of Illinois. The next year, his father-in-law, quite impressed with the young man and his work ethic, made John the manager of all three KFC restaurants. His yearly salary was set at $15,000, which in today's money is nearly $120,000. He also earned a share of the overall profits from the restaurants. Since the stores were in Waterloo, Iowa, John and his wife moved there from Illinois. So once they settled in Waterloo, life was going pretty well for them. He was making excellent money. He was considered a pillar of the community. And not long after, he became a father. Michael Gacy was born in 1966, and Christine followed in 1967. And, much to John's surprise, he had also finally won his father's approval. During a visit from his parents to Iowa, John Sr. apologized to his son, stating he had been wrong about him. 
and make no mistake, John threw himself into his career as well as the JCs, often working 12 to 14 hour days. And then on top of that, he headed several fundraising projects. At meetings for various organizations, he would provide free fried chicken from his stores and wanted to be nicknamed the Colonel. But behind the scenes, John was living it up. People participated in wife swapping and he cheated on his wife on several occasions with prostitutes. Befriending his young employees, John also began inviting teens to play pool in his basement where he gave them alcohol and began making sexual advances at the teenage boys. If they refused, he would pass it off as a joke. Just months after his daughter was born, 25-year-old John Gacy sexually assaulted his first victim. The son of a friend, he lured the 15-year-old boy to his house with the promise of seeing pornography. John then gave the boy alcohol and talked the youth into performing oral sex on him and there were several more boys after. Gacy talked another teen boy into sleeping with his own wife, then used that as leverage to get the boy to do the same as the others. John even tricked some into thinking he was conducting scientific experiments in homosexuality, then paid them $50 each for oral sex. Finally, in 1968, after he had gotten away with it for a year, Gacy's friend's son finally told his father about what John had made him do. The father called the police, and Gacy was later charged with oral sodomy of two teens. Gacy completely denied any wrongdoing, even demanding a polygraph, which was silly because it showed deception. John stated that the accusation was politically motivated, that one of the fathers of one of his victims had opposed John's nomination to be the president of the Iowa JCs. And many people believed him and they supported him. John even talked one of his employees into assaulting one of his victims to try to keep him from testifying. The youths did fight, but the victim was able to get away. He called the police immediately. It came out that John had offered to pay the youth $300 to beat that victim up. So John was ordered to have a psychiatric evaluation at the State University of Iowa. Two doctors evaluated him for nearly three weeks and both diagnosed him with an anti-personality disorder and therefore would, now get this, most likely not benefit from any therapy or treatment and that he would be a repeat offender in the future. But then again, they said he was mentally competent to stand trial. So John's attorney convinced him to plead guilty to only one of the counts of sodomy and was convicted in December 1968 and given a 10-year sentence. The day he was convicted was the day his wife filed for divorce, and he never saw her or his children ever again.
So during his stint in prison, he quickly earned the reputation of being a model prisoner. It didn't take long for him to work his way up to being the head cook. Interestingly, there was an inmate chapter of the JCs that he joined, and he was able to get the membership up to 650 from what was just 50 inmates, and that's actually rather impressive. He was even able to finish school while there, and he got his high school diploma. Then in 1969, on Christmas Day, John's father succumbed to his alcoholism and died from cirrhosis of the liver, and John wasn't notified until his father had been dead for two days. Once he heard the news, he became inconsolable. He requested, quote, supervised compassionate leave to be able to go to his father's funeral, but he was denied. But then six months later, in June of 1970, he was put out on parole on the condition that he would move back to Chicago and live with his mother. He would also have a very strict 10 p.m. curfew. And he also had to check in with the Iowa Parole Board frequently. Once he moved back, he quickly got a job as a short order cook. Not even a year later, John was arrested for luring a teen into his car that he picked up from the Greyhound bus station with the promise of driving him home, and he sexually assaulted him. But the teen didn't show up to court so the charges were dropped. And because he was now in Illinois, the Iowa Parole Board didn't find out about it. Once this incident was behind him, his mother helped him buy a house, the house, on Somerdale Avenue. And at first, John and his mother both lived in the house together. But not too long after, he reunited with an old high school girlfriend who was now divorced with two small daughters, and they began dating. Once they were married in July of 1972, his mother moved out. But a few months before his wedding, John drove by that Greyhound bus terminal again, and on this occasion, he picked up 16-year-old Timothy McCoy. He took the teen on a sightseeing tour of Chicago, then drove him to his house and told him he could spend the night, and he'd drive him back to the station in time to catch his next bus. John Gacy awoke the next morning to find McCoy standing in his bedroom doorway with a kitchen knife in his hand. John jumped from his bed, and Timothy raised both arms in a gesture of surrender, tilting the knife upward and accidentally cutting John's forearm, and John did have a scar. John then twisted the knife from the teen. He grabbed the youth. He wrestled him to the floor, then stabbed him repeatedly in the chest as he straddled him with his body. Gacy later claimed that he went into his kitchen and saw an opened carton of eggs and a slab of unsliced bacon on his kitchen table. McCoy had also set the table for two. He had walked into Gacy's room to wake him, absentmindedly carrying the knife in his hand with no ill intent. 
John buried Timothy's body in his crawl space under the house and later covered the youth's grave with a layer of concrete. In an interview after his arrest, Gacy stated that immediately after killing Timothy, he felt exhausted but had also experienced a, quote, mind-numbing orgasm, unquote, as he killed that teen. He added, quote, that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill, unquote. One week before his nuptials, a teen a complaint against him, stating John had pretended to be a police officer, including a sheriff's badge, and lured him into his car and forced him to perform oral sex on John. Luckily for John, the charges were subsequently dropped when the teen was caught blackmailing John, trying to get him to pay him to drop the charges. So, as John's new little family got settled, he quit his job as a cook and started his own construction company, which he named PDM's Contractors, PDM standing for Painting, Decorating, and Maintenance. John offered services for minor repairs, uh, concrete, interior design, installation, room remodeling, and landscaping, and his business was very successful. Once, John took a young employee of his to Florida with him to look at some property that he had purchased. While there, he raped that young man. After, the youth refused to stay in the room, choosing instead to sleep on the beach. Once they returned to Chicago, the young man went to John's house and proceeded to beat him up. When his wife asked why, Gacy stated that he had decided against paying the young man due to a poor work performance. But yet again, John's public persona was fantastic. He attended church, he was a family man again, he volunteered at the Democratic Precinct Captain in his area. And during this time, he threw elaborate block parties and built a solid reputation within his community. He was respected and admired by friends, neighbors, and police officers. In 1974, John murdered his second victim. The still unidentified teen youth had medium brown, curly hair between 14 and 18 years old, whom John strangled before storing the youth's body in his closet prior to burial. Gacy later stated that fluid leaked out of the youth's mouth and nose as he was stored in the closet, staining his carpet. Because of this, John began stuffing cloth rags or the victim's own underwear in their mouths to prevent a reoccurrence of this incident. This particular unidentified victim was buried about 15 feet or 4.6 meters from the barbecue pit in John's backyard. But, you know, 1975 was a pivotal year. By now, he had created his famous alter egos, Pogo the Clown and Patches the Clown. He designed the costumes and even taught himself how to apply clown makeup. He performed as Pogo or Patches at numerous local parties, 
Democratic Party functions, charitable events, and even children's hospitals. He even dressed in his clown costume to go to a favorite drinking venue named the Good Luck Lounge on several occasions with the explanation that he had just performed his pogo and was stopping for a social drink before returning home. But his marriage was not doing so well. After he and his wife had been intimate on Mother's Day that year, he informed her that that would be the last time. He told her that he was bisexual, though it is reported that he was homosexual. His wife later stated that she had noticed John bringing teen boys into his garage and had also found gay pornography inside their house. They divorced by mutual consent in March 1976. Now, John later admitted that this was also the year that he began to increase his sexual excursions with young males. He referred to this as cruising. And one of these teens was 15-year-old Anthony Antonucci, whom John had hired to work for his construction company. In July, Gacy arrived at Anthony's home while he was alone due to injuring his foot at work the day before. He gave him alcohol. He then wrestled him to the floor and cuffed his hands behind his back. The cuff on Anthony's right wrist was loose and he freed his arm after John left the room. When he returned, Anthony, who just happened to be a member of his high school wrestling team, jumped him. The teen wrestled John to the floor. He got the handcuffed key and cuffed Gacy's hands behind his back. John screamed threats, but then calmed and promised to leave if he removed the handcuffs. The youth agreed, and John left the house. One week later, another employee of John's, 17-year-old John Butkovich, disappeared. The day before, Butkovich had threatened Gacy about him owing him two weeks back pay. Gacy lured him to his home to issue him the overdue wages. John somehow conned the young man into allowing his wrists to be cuffed behind his back. Gacy then strangled him and buried the body under the concrete floor of his garage. Gacy later admitted he, quote, sat on the kid's chest for a while before killing him. That youth's car was found in a parking lot, the boy's wallet inside and the keys still in the ignition. The boy's father called John, who said he'd be happy to help search for the teen, but was sorry that he had, quote, run away. John was eventually questioned about the youth's disappearance, and he admitted that the teen and two friends had come demanding the overdue pay, but that was all and all of them had left after a compromise had been reached. Interestingly, over the next three years, that youth's parents called the police more than 100 times, begging them to investigate John further. And once John got a taste, he began killing in ever-increasing intervals, which is typical for serial killers. He killed a 17-year-old teen named Michael Bonin by strangling him with a ligature and buried him in the crawl space. Ten days later, 
16-year-old William Carroll was murdered and buried directly beneath John's kitchen. William was the first of four males known to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6th, 1976, and who were buried in a common grave under Gacy's kitchen and laundry room floor. There was one unidentified male that was murdered between these dates who was a bit older than the others, estimated between 22 to 30 years old. He was buried directly beneath the body of 16-year-old James Hakinson, who is last known to have phoned his family on August 5th, and whose body was itself buried directly beneath that of 17-year-old Rick Johnston, who was last seen alive on August 6th. So John hired 18-year-old David Cram and invited him to move into his house. One day, John conned David into putting on handcuffs while David was drunk. Then he informed him that he was going to rape him. David, who had been in the army, kicked John in the face, then freed himself from the handcuffs and escaped. Shortly after David had fled John's residence, another employee of PDM Contractors, 18-year-old Michael Rossi, moved in. But by this point, John was quite literally piling the corpses on top of each other under his house. In March 1978, John realized that he had run out of places to bury the ever-increasing number of bodies on his property, so he began dumping them over the I-55 bridge into the river. Gacy lured another victim, Jeffrey Rignall, into his car, and once he was in the car, the young man was chloroformed and driven to John's house, where he was raped, tortured with various instruments, including lit candles and whips, and he was repeatedly chloroformed into unconsciousness. Jeffrey was then driven to Lincoln Park, where he was dumped unconscious but alive. He managed to get to his girlfriend's apartment. Jeffrey was later told that the chloroform had permanently damaged his liver. Police were again informed of this assault and again did not investigate John. Jeffrey was able to recall John's distinctive black Oldsmobile, the Kennedy Expressway, and particular side streets. So Jeffrey staked out the exit on the expressway where he knew he had been driven until he saw John's black Oldsmobile car, and then he and his friends followed John to the house. Police finally issued an arrest warrant, and John was arrested on July 15th. He made bail and was facing trial for the battery charge against Jeffrey when John committed his final murder on December 11, 1978. He visited a pharmacy to discuss a potential remodeling deal with the owner of the store, Phil Torf. 15-year-old employee Robert Peast heard John mention that he hired teenage boys at $5 an hour, almost double the pay that Peast earned at the pharmacy, and $5 an hour was a very good amount of money in the late 70s. After John left the store, 
Peast told his mother that, quote, some contractor wants to talk to me about a job, unquote. Peast left the store promising to return shortly. But then he didn't. And his family looked for him and looked for him and finally filed a missing person report to the police. The owner of the pharmacy named John Wayne Gacy as the contractor. They questioned John and he completely denied talking to Peast, indicating he had seen two youths working at the pharmacy and that he had asked one of them whether any remodeling materials were in the back of the store. He was adamant, however, that he had not offered Peast a job and promised to come to the station later that evening to make a statement, saying he was unable to at that moment as his uncle had just died. At 3.20 a.m., Gacy, covered in mud, arrived at the police station, claiming he had been involved in a car accident. Now, police were convinced that John was behind Peast's disappearance and checked his record, discovering that he had an outstanding battery charge as well as serving a prison term in Iowa for the sodomy of a teen boy. A search warrant for John's house was ordered by a judge at the request of detectives and turned up several suspicious items, such as a 1975 high school class ring, various driver's licenses, handcuffs, a two-by-four with holes drilled in the ends, books on homosexuality and pedophilia, a syringe, male clothing obviously too small for John, a six-millimeter pistol, and a photo receipt from the pharmacy where Robert Peast worked. Police decided to confiscate his car along with other PDM vehicles and assigned surveillance teams to follow John while they continued their investigation. Four days after his last murder, investigators were able to link evidence obtained from John's house to missing young men. And John knew that he was being watched by surveillance detectives and started inviting them to join him for meals in various restaurants and occasionally for drinks in bars or in his home. He repeatedly denied that he had anything to do with any disappearances and accused the officers of harassing him because of his political connections. Knowing these officers were unlikely to arrest him on anything trivial, he openly taunted them by breaking traffic laws and succeeding in losing his pursuers on more than one occasion. What car he was driving since they took his car and other company vehicles, I don't know. And while he was doing this, the police brought in a dog to sniff the inside of his black Oldsmobile that had been brought in for an examination and the dog hit on the passenger seat for the car for Peast's scent, meaning that boy's body had been in that car. That same evening, John invited two of the surveillance detectives to a restaurant where over breakfast he talked of his business, his marriages, and his activities as a registered clown. Gacy even told them, get this, quote, You know, clowns can get away with murder. 
unquote. Idiot. Gacy was starting to show visible signs of stress due to the constant surveillance. He was unkempt, tired, he appeared anxious, and he was drinking heavily. The next day, John drove to his lawyer's office to prepare a $750,000 civil suit against the police, demanding that they cease their surveillance. But that night, one of John's employees was interviewed and informed detectives that in the summer of 1977, John had had him spread 10 bags of lime in the crawl space under his house. On December 19th, so this is eight days after murdering Peace, John invited two of the surveillance detectives into his home. One officer distracted him with conversation while another walked into the bathroom and he flushed the toilet, noting a smell that he suspected could be that of rotten flesh coming from a heating duct. And these guys would obviously know what that smell was. John's former employee, Rossi, was interviewed by investigators on December 20th. When asked, Rossi stated bodies might be in that crawl space. He stated he dug trenches in the crawl space and said Gacy insisted that he not deviate from where he was instructed to dig. The next evening, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office and appeared disheveled, immediately asking for an alcoholic drink. Then they asked John what he had to discuss with them. Gacy picked up a copy of the Daily Herald from a desk. He pointed to the front page article covering the disappearance of Robert Peast and informed his lawyers, quote, this boy is dead. He's in a river, unquote. Worried that John might be suicidal, the police decided to go ahead and arrest him. Ultimately, he was charged with 33 murders. He tried to convince people that he had DID, then called multiple personality disorder. He was instead diagnosed as a psychopath. No one bought it, and he was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to death. And John desperately tried to appeal his conviction, naming all manner of reasons why he was not guilty. But he was executed on May 9th of 1994. And guess what his final words were? Quote, kiss my ass, unquote. So that's the whole story. I do believe that he was a psychopath in the purest definition. Scientists have identified biological brain differences in psychopathic people versus others. Now, the question is, if that is true, and John Gacy was born a psychopath, did that lead him to being a serial killer? Many psychopaths go on to lead very successful lives, leading the biggest businesses we can think of, and they physically harm no one. So does that mean John's childhood environment or possible head trauma caused a switch to flip? It is the age-old question of nature versus nurture. The question of nature versus nurture is an age-old one. But what do you think? 
Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com, which is always under construction, and also consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather this info, but I love it. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thanks and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.